Good morning, brothers and sisters. If you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. We're going to look at the first 18 verses. Acts 11, verses 1 through 18. As a guy who's probably had way too much school under his belt and is still in the process of school, much to my wife's chagrin, I've read a few books on church planning and church growth in my time. I'm here to tell you that they are pretty much all wrong. The good news is that in my reading, I've unlocked the secret to church growth. And I'm here this morning to share that with you. You ready? If you haven't realized already, just for those who've, you know, I'm being a little facetious here. But here is the secret, Will's secret, you could say, for church growth. It is truly profound, and I hope you guys see the profundity of it. Here it is. You ready? You don't look ready. Here it is. For us to grow as a church, we need more cigarette butts in our parking lot. For us to grow as a church, we need more cigarette butts in our parking lot. There's a story behind this. When I was a teenager, I remember my youth pastor getting in trouble. As often, well, the elders called him into one meeting and they issued a complaint. There are too many cigarette butts in the church parking lot. Surely these are not from our upstanding Christian members. They must be the rabble-rousing kids you are letting in the beloved church building. Do you not know that this is God's house? It is sacred. There should be no such butts of any kind on our church property. This is an offense not just to our nostrils, but to God's holiness. We cannot have cigarette butts litter around such holy grounds. This must be dealt with immediately. These cigarette butt tossers were an affront to the elders of this church. Much like the Gentiles were an affront to the Jews at the time of Jesus. You could say these elders had what we talked about last week as an entrenched prejudice against cigarette butts and the users who smoke them. See, this was a church that was separate from the world, and such separation meant that there should be no cigarette butts in the church parking lot. Smoking, smokers, and the cigarettes they, butts they produced were considered to be as dogs, much like how the Jews perceived the Gentiles during the time of Jesus' day. Thankfully, the youth pastor did not listen to the elders. Instead, he humbly went around on a regular basis and picked up those cigarette butts, one by one. And he continued to love and share the gospel with those reprehensible, smoking, cigarette butt-tossing rabble-rousers, those worldly teenagers. His love and gospel proclamation bore fruit it laid the foundation for one young man to head off to Bible college to surrender to Christ's call and to be commissioned 
for ministry. See, those cigarette butts were mine. God's saving mercy is shocking. And the shock of His salvation is often hard to swallow. It is often unbelievable. It unfolds in ways that we cannot process or expect. We think of people who would make nice Christians and they never become Christians. We think of people who would make awful Christians and they are the believers sitting next to you. In Acts 11, these 18 verses, news of the Gentiles' salvation spreads and a splinter group arises in the church and immediately takes offense. The Gentiles could not be saved. The good news is not for them. It is for us. We are God's chosen people, not them. Surely those who toss cigarette butts into our parking lots cannot receive the immeasurable mercies of God. So unfolding in this chapter is the story of Peter's response to these criticisms. I want to break up this passage this morning into three parts. First, to look at the criticism in verses 1 to 3. The circumcision party rejects the idea of the Gentiles being saved. Secondly, there's Peter's justification in verses 4 to 17. He explains the wonder of God's salvation and justifies why these Gentile dogs are now brothers and sisters in Christ. And then in verse 18, there's the response. How these circumcision party people respond to the news of the Gentile saving. So criticism, justification, and response. Let me read Acts 11, 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, and looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord 
how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then, God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is what I want us to walk away with this morning. God's salvation is beautifully shocking. Therefore, we must do everything in our power to not stand in His way. Let's begin by looking at the criticism. The story begins with criticism. It's a sad testament to the state of the church when criticism comes from the gospel being proclaimed and the gospel being believed. But this has also been part of the history of the church. See, in the first great awakening, the Spirit is being poured out in wonder and might And then there are some pastors, some elders, some church members who are saying that cannot be the Spirit of God. And Jonathan Edwards, probably America's greatest theologian, pens, which is probably the most important and wonderful book, The Religious Affections, that basically shows how the glory of God is pouring out in spite of all of our preconceived notions and expectations, how God is moving in wonder and might and glory in New England and beyond. Thankfully, this criticism was limited in coming from a group, a specific group of people. It was not the entire early church. The problem was this group had influence. This group was significant enough that it caused Peter to need to respond. It unfolds This all starts by the news spreading throughout Judea of the Gentiles receiving God's word. At some point, Peter returns to Jerusalem and where there should be celebration, there should be joy, there should be movement of God's people, he's met with criticism. See, the circumcision party, the ones who said, why are you eating with these Gentiles? We'll see them again in Acts 15. They're described, their theology is described in this way. They believe that unless you are circumcised, this is from Acts 15.1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they were putting a stumbling block in the way of salvation. This was a significant issue that really didn't get fully resolved into Acts 15. But for now, they heard Peter. He was dealing with those Gentiles There's a clear us versus them mentality working that sowing seeds of discontent and trouble in the early church. The circumcision party issues their complaint. Look at verse 3. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? You ate with sinners? You ate with the despised of the world? You ate with cigarette butt tossers? See, the the circumcision party, they were what we could maybe say is the the theological gatekeepers of the church. They are the fighting fundies. They are the ones who believe that God himself has trusted them alone with the theological purity of the church. 
And they will do everything within that power, including destroying the church, to maintain that purity. Now don't get me wrong, theological purity is essential to a healthy church. If you're not healthy, if you're not theologically healthy, you're not going to be a healthy church. But this is the exact problem with the circumcision party. Their theology was wrong. Their theology was completely in error. They missed the boat. They failed to grasp that God's plan throughout history has been to save a people. He saved the Jews, called Abram out for his blessing, his name to spread, his people to spread, so that would be a blessing to all the nations. This was God's plan from the beginning. This was no plan B. God planned to save the nations. In Revelation 5, which we read last week, men and women from every tribe, language, people, nation, this has always been God's plan. But this circumcision party that was in theological error, they were, you could say it's a little data now, but you could say they were too busy boycotting Disney. Or maybe now you could say they were too busy getting all up, up in arms about critical race theory or the latest socialistic issues. Or They failed to see, the point being, they failed to see that God was shockingly saving people that they would not expect to be saved. And He was doing it in wonder and power the same way He saved them. Taking enemies and turning them into sons and daughters. They forgot that the very Jesus they claimed to follow was the one who was charged as a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus regularly and intentionally hung out with the despised of the world, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the Samaritans, and the like. He was a friend of sinners. For it was sinners He came to save. Those who are well need no physician, but those who are sick. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Just as a side note, take a moment to consider to think about your group of friends. Does your group of friends reflect Jesus' group of friends? I'm not saying go befriend a prostitute. But I'm saying, do you know sinners? Do you interact with sinners? Do you love sinners? See, Peter knew the risk when he decided to go to Cornelius' house. Back in chapter 10, verse 28, he said, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But Peter also recognized a greater risk. The risk of disobeying his God who said, go. Peter was ready. He was justified by God in spite of the criticisms. He is able to turn to say to them, this shocking salvation of the Gentiles is because of God's shocking mercy. So verses 4-17, to we come to Peter's justification. Now we don't need to spend too long here because we've already been here. Last week, Peter basically almost gives a word-by-word recount of what happened. And his summary is an explanation, a justification for God's shocking salvation. Cornelius is prompted by an angel sent for Peter to send for Peter. Peter is in a trance and he's prepared by God. 
What God has made clean, do not call common. So Cornelius' entourage arrives as soon as that light bulb is starting to click on in Peter's mind. The Spirit tells Peter in verse 12, Go to Caesarea. Make no distinction. No matter who shows up at the door, go with them. He arrives at Cornelius' house, shares a message that leads to the salvation not only of Cornelius, but his entire household. And if you remember from last week, he had a party of friends, family, and relatives going. They were all waiting to hear the gospel message. They all believed the gospel message. The gospel is proclaimed, believe the Spirit of God falls in power and might just as it did in Acts 2. The light bulb finally clicks off in Peter's mind. The gospel is for everyone who believes. The gospel is for everyone who believes. The story is remarkable. It should be remarkable. It should cause us to pause with wonder and awe. See, every story of God's saving mercy is a testimony to His redeeming power and wonderful mercy. Everyone here who's sitting in this pew who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, your story is a testimony to the power of God of taking someone who should not be saved, who is not savable, but with God all things are possible, so therefore you today believe. That should blow your mind and create deep joy in your heart. And if it doesn't, you should question whether you truly believe. We don't listen to those stories enough. I think that's part of a problem. We don't hear other store people's stories. We don't ask to hear others. How did you become a believer in Christ? How is God working in your life today? We don't do that enough. So because we don't do that enough, we are not awed enough. We don't listen enough. We're too busy. We're too caught up in ourselves to listen to others. Countless problems, countless excuses. We're too busy turning on the news instead of listening to the praise and testimonies of God's people. We're too worried about X, Y, and Z instead of hearing how God has saved a sinner who should never have been saved in the first place, who deserves the full wrath of God but has received His loving mercy and justice. In verse 17, Peter says this, If God gave the same gift to them, as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I that could stand in God's way? Who am I? God has given the Gentiles the gift of His beloved Son. Jesus is for everyone who believes. So Peter asks this pointed question that we're going to return to in a moment. Who am I to stand in God's way? Now, as he's recounting this, the circumcision party, just like Peter did last week, we saw last week, now they have a decision to make. Would they stand in God's way? Would they be like Jonah, who ran away from God's mission? Or would they be like Peter, who, on the other hand, was confused, perplexed, worried, wondering what's going on, but was faithful to God's commission, regardless of the cost, regardless of the cost. Would the circumcision party stand in God's way? Would they stand in the way of God's plan and for the growth of His church? So let's look at verse 18. How do they respond? 
I love how Luke describes it. When they heard these things, they fell And I'd like to think it was long enough time for it to be really awkward. They fell silent. And then they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So there's kind of three things here, two that are obvious, one that's implied. First, there's the silence. In the face of God's powerful saving mercy, there is silence. I like to think that there's such an awe and wonder about God's saving mercy that for at least a moment, in a a slice, a sliver of our lives, we can take a moment and sit there in silence, being completely overwhelmed by the never-ending love of God. that we are left speechless. God's saving mercies should take our breath away. But here's the thing. We must never, never stay silent. Never stay silent. There is praise. When confronted with God's salvation, our heart should always move us to praise and worship. God must be glorified. One of the most moving passages is in Scripture is Paul describing God's election of a people to salvation, God's lovingly choosing a people in Romans 9-11. through And then as Paul is wrapping up his argument, he comes to this. This is all he can utter out of his mind. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. There is silence, there is praise, and then this is the one that's, I think, implied, there is proclamation. Praise is a sense of proclamation. When you give praise to God for your salvation, you are proclaiming His mercy. So how did these criticizers respond? With silence, with praise, and with proclamation. So I wrap up, I want to return to verse 17 for a moment. I want to consider how we may, could, maybe even are, standing in God's way as a people, as a church. Someone recently asked me this question, and I thought it was a pretty fascinating question. What do you believe is the greatest threat to the church today? What do you believe is the greatest threat to the church today? Another way of asking this is kind of going back to verse 17. What stands in God's way? What is keeping the church from growing? It took me a little bit to finally get to this conclusion. 
but this is what I've come up with. The greatest threat to the church today is God himself. The greatest threat to the church today is God himself. Don't worry, I'll explain. When we hear this question, our first thoughts usually go to external threats. The homosexual agenda, abortion, socialism, the politics, COVID-19, persecution, you name it. And there are countless threats today, numerous isms that the church is fearful of. But here's the thing. If we believe those are truly threats to the church, truly going to destroy the church, then we have failed to take Jesus' words seriously. The gates of hell, brothers and sisters, will never prevail. If we believe that those external threats are going to destroy the church, then we have what has... C.S. Lewis has called historical amnesia. We have failed to see that there have been greater threats throughout the entire history of the church, but God's church marches on. Just look at Acts. Stephen, martyred, the church persecuted. Throughout our church's history, people often come to me and say, Pastor, look how bad it is today. I'm like, go back to Rome. It was a whole lot worse. And it is bad today. And it's not really that bad in America. It's bad in other countries. I wasn't sure I was going to bring this up because it's ripping me inside, but to hear that 300 and I believe 16 more girls were kidnapped in Nigeria. That's been really, well, I'm going to just say, pissing me off lately and wondering why God has allowed that. But I have to believe because God's word says his church will prevail in spite of any external threat. It comes down to does Jesus keep his promise or not? Is Jesus' word true or not? Will the gates of hell really prevail? And for me, I wish he would come again soon and pour out his justice, which he does promise. When he comes, it will be bloody and vengeful. And it will be just and right. He will be good to destroy the wicked. The early church father, Tertullian, so powerfully remarked that the blood of the martyrs has been and continues to be the seed of the church. So brothers and sisters, there will, is no external threat that will destroy the church of Christ. The gates of hell will not prevail. So then we can turn to internal threats. What about these internal threats? They certainly are real. They come rupturing from within. Paul, Paul promised such threats when he warned the Ephesian elders. He says this in Acts 20, 29-30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock, and from among you your own selves will arise, men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. This is why the job description of an elder is to pay careful attention to ourselves and to the flock. Why? Because fierce wolves are roaming. 
They have always roamed and they will continue to roam. So we as God's people are called to be alert, to remember the truth of God, to faithfully preach the whole counsel of God. These internal threats are playing out all over the news today. I don't know about you, but reading the news is depressing enough. Reading the Christian news is on a whole other level of depressing. Another pastor commits an affair. A famous and beloved apologist, one who had a deep impact in my life early on, turns out to be a manipulator and even charged as a rapist. There will always be wolves among the sheep. That is a promise that Christ gives to us. And make no mistake, they are a great threat, but they are not the greatest threat. Why can I say that? Because God will continue to preserve His church from both external and internal threats. Why? Because Jesus promised the gates of hell, whether from outside or inside, will not prevail. His church is promised the victory. So where does that leave us? God is the greatest threat to the church today. So let me explain before you get confused. In order to understand this, I want to just drop back quickly to the book of Revelation. Particularly in Jesus' letters to the seven churches. The best way for me to sum up the book of Revelation is with a short phrase. Jesus wins. That is the point of Revelation. Jesus is telling His persecuted, suffering, broken church, Jesus wins. But there is a therefore that follows Jesus winning. It's especially clear in those seven letters. Jesus wins, therefore, beloved church, you must overcome. Jesus wins, overcome. Jesus wins, overcome. I am the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus says, the beginning and the end. I have overcome. I will win. I have won. Therefore, you, my brothers, my children, my beloved children, you, my church, you, my body, you must overcome. We could say it this way. Jesus promises to preserve us as we persevere. But then he gives a warning. He gives a warning to the churches. If you do not overcome, I will remove your lampstand. If you want to know what the lampstand is, it's basically the, the churchness. The fact that there's a lampstand in each of the seven churches basically says that they are a church. So when Jesus threatens to remove the lampstand, he is threatening to cause them to cease to be a church. They could still be meeting. The pews could still be full. There could still be a preacher up there, but they cease to be a church. Now I've been to where the seven churches were in Turkey. I can attest to the fact that they failed to overcome. It's a heartbreaking thing when you're on the tour of the seven churches and all you see, the tour guide, unbelieving tour guide, points out to a rubble foundation. 
he's not pointing to where church was because most likely they still met in homes and things, but he's pointing to the fact that this is probably going back to the time where the church existed and it's a stark reality that the church no longer exists. See, God doesn't promise, and we need to be clear on this, God doesn't promise to keep every single church alive. But He does promise that His church, the universal church of Christ, will live and go on forever triumphant. So Jesus threatens the church. You could say, if you do not overcome, then I will come and bring judgment, Jesus says. I will remove your lampstand. So Jesus, if I could sum it up this way, tells His church bluntly, if you stand in my way, I will kill you. I will destroy your church. In other words, if we fail to overcome, we get in God's way, and He becomes our greatest threat. He will put an end to the church. God is the greatest threat to the church today. So the question then becomes, how do we get out of God's way? How do we get out of God's way? How do we overcome? Is another way of looking at it. I believe Revelation, the letter, especially to Ephesus, holds a great key, if we will. We need to remember we need to repent, and we need to return. Verse 4 of Revelation 2, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, Jesus says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Grace Chapel, God will remove our lampstand unless we remember, unless we repent, and unless we return. And that's not a one-time thing where you hold this little Sunday service of repentance and returning. This is every day of your life, Christian life, marks of the Christian life. And some people say, why does Pastor Will talk about sin so much? Because we're all sinners. The moment you guys stop sinning is the moment I'll stop calling you to repent. So as long as we remain sinners... The preacher's responsibility is to call men and women to repentance. Jesus himself calls his beloved church to repentance. To remember the height from which we have fallen. To see the depths of our sin. To grasp that we were once children in darkness, dead in our trespasses. To see that we continue to sin and then repent. To truly confess our sins to God and shockingly, Scripture says, to one another. But then we have the promise that if we confess our sins, He is what, church? Faithful and just. And will cleanse us from our sins and unrighteousness. And we return. We do the works we did at first. You remember that time when you were first a believer in Christ? And now maybe many years later have forgotten what it was like. 
Jesus is calling you to remember what it was like. He was calling you to remember that sense of your great sin, the sense of the wonder of His salvation that I should not be saved. But it's by Your grace and mercy, O God, I am. And it should call us back to do the things we first... Remember that passion you first had when you believed in Christ? He's calling us back to that shocking, wonderful salvation renewed in wonder of the cross and the glory of the resurrection. So do you want to know the real key to church growth? It's church health. A church will not grow unless it is healthy. You can put in all kinds of programs, job descriptions, structures, and you will not grow unless you are healthy. And how do you become a healthy church? Remember. Therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And accept the truth that if you don't, Jesus will remove your lampstand. I want to see Grace Chapel overcome. I want to see everyone here truly believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and know that He is preserving you, you must persevere. I want to see a healthy church. Because a healthy church is a growing church. And Jesus promises healthy churches, overcoming churches, this. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. To the one who overcomes, they will not be hurt by the second death. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it. To the one who overcomes, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. To the one who overcomes, they will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. To the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And finally, to the one who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Father, may we overcome. Help us to overcome. For it is not something we can do On our own. It's something you must do in us. We need a renewed sense of your grace and mercy. We need to be warned that you are our greatest threat. We need to see the reality that you are calling your church to repentance, regular repentance, regular remembering of our sin, repenting of our sin, and turning turning to the Savior of our souls. Help us get out of the way. Keep us out of the way. 
Father, we ask that you use us, your people, to bring many sons and daughters to you. Allow us to become a healthy church that becomes a growing church so many cigarette butts start littering our parking lot. And that we are not content with them coming to us, but that we are so in love with you that we have no other response but to go to them. Father, work in our hearts in such a way. Renew us. Renew the wonder and the joy of your salvation. And renew that sense of mission and purpose within us. Allow us to be a church that is healthy and growing, that makes disciples of all the nations. And it's in your great and wonderful and mighty name, Jesus, we pray and ask these things. Amen.